The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 16. I had already made up a plan before we took off to go to this private airstrip and drop them off at the closest safe place as possible. But then we realized that I'm like, hey, so what are the injuries like? And and the fine engineers were telling me, dude, there, there's some bad ones back here. We've got about you know two dozen people that have some sort of injury. Some of these are pretty major, major burns, uh, like second, third degree burns over 40% of your body or more. Um, there's some people with broken bones. One guy literally crawled into the, was crawling up to the aircraft because he had broken both of his ankles. That's the voice of my guest today, Chief Warrant Officer 5, Joseph Rosamon. He's a Chinook helicopter pilot and Army National Guardsman out in California. And he's describing the events of September 5th where he and his crew, alongside a Black Hawk crew, are credited with rescuing over 240 individuals who were stranded during these wildfires, many of which had severe injuries. It is quite an incredible story for their efforts. Each crew member was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for their heroism by the president just a few weeks ago. We're going to dig deep into this story. It's quite incredible in my opinion. I've broken it into two parts, both of which are available right now for you to download and listen. Before we get rolling, just a few admin notes. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hangar 24 Craft Brewing. They have three tap rooms, Redlands, California, Orange County, and then Lake Havasu, Arizona. If you're in the region, I highly encourage you to swing by. This is a beer aviation adventure company. Absolutely love their beer. I love the brand. I love the people. If you live in California, Arizona, you can actually have their beer shipped to you or you can find it at a store near you. Hangar24craftbrewing.com. You can use their beer locator to find it near you. I'd also like to thank Squadron Posters. Again, a company that I just absolutely love. and I've been a customer of theirs for several years. They have upped the game from just making posters to share the adventure and your journey through life. I would encourage you to swing by squadronposters.com and check out their bomber style artwork. It's a really cool way to display, again, your journey. And also, they have metal nose art. So if you want something that looked like it just came off the side of a plane with whatever graphic design you want on there, they can do that. Swing over to squadronposters.com and orders over $59 or more receive a 10% discount with the discount code RAIN10. That's RAIN10. I'd also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. Again, Another company that I just absolutely love, and I love their products. If you're looking to build a custom watch, this is their bread and butter. You can work with their design team to commemorate your journey, your organization, your unit, whatever it might be, through a custom watch that's affordable and is high quality. Swing by wingmanwatch.com, and you can use the code RAIN10 to receive a discount on any current watch that's on there, or you can mention my name to receive a discount on your group customization order. With the admin out of the way, let's get into the podcast with Chief Warrant Officer Joe Rosamond. So if you go ahead and say something real quick. All right. Uh, test. Uh, I guess testing the audio here. Yeah, that's perfect. So, Joe, thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I'm branching out into the Army. So, C-25 Rosamond, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Happy to have you here. 
and excited yeah. to hear about your story. Yeah, having me. Will you tell me a little about who you are, like the brief snapshot of how you got to where you are today in life and what you're doing? Yeah, you know, it's really a, uh, I guess it's a right time, right place kind of kind of story. I happen to be the only guy at, at the, uh, sitting there at the boards uh, for flight school when I actually applied. So uh, I grew, I mean, I grew up as, uh, in California and uh, I had uh, some roots here already. And ended up, I was actually going to join the Air Force, uh, called the recruiter out of high school. They never called me back. Uh, apparently they didn't like my senior uh, grades, but, uh, uh, so the army, the army recruiter called me back, you know, and I'm like, Hey, I want to go fly. I, I've always wanted to go fly, you know? And, and, uh, cause well, you know, I can't get you into flight school, but I can, we can get you near the people that, that can affect that. Right. And so ended up taking, uh, taking an MOS that put me in ops, you know, and, and, um, uh, and immediately started working on, on that flight packet and got it done pretty quickly. And, and uh and they had a shortfall course for me so they uh i went to the board they were like can you leave in a week and a half i'm like yeah I can, i'm single <laughs> i have nothing to do yeah i'll leave in a week and a half done you know yeah no, done. no joke right <laughs> yeah so yeah um i mean yeah i grew up i was a i was a boy scout i i'd always had my parents that were uh uh pushing me to do to do things and make goals and make these small, smaller goals to reach bigger ones, you know, and, and that was one of the steps, uh, to, to accomplish what I wanted, you know, what I wanted to do. And now you're a California guardsman flying CH-47s yep. the Chinook. Have you been doing that your entire career? Yeah. So, uh, right out of flight school, I got the Chinook transition. Uh, I've been flying Chinooks the whole time. I did get qualified in the Lakota. Uh, a few years back when I was a, a battalion level dude, never really progressed in it though. Um, they keep asking me, but uh, I, at the time I was also wing ratings, uh, catching up on all that. Uh, so I fly around that, that, uh, that Cessna, that real fast Cessna, you know, <laughs> yeah, just screaming. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, like everybody else pre COVID, you know, we were all looking at the airlines, you know, yep. uh, I was, we're looking at the, and and that was my primary plan in fact i was supposed to be in training right now but uh covid kind of messed all that up and so i got all my fixed wing stuff done and uh with the same time they wanted me to progress in the lakota i'm like nah that learning that on top of what i'm already doing for myself is a little much so i kind of postponed that a bit but yeah my whole career been i'm working on my 23rd year now and uh uh it's all been all but two of it's been chinooks that's that's incredible 23 years of flying so we're kind of joking before we hit the record button here. Like I had one sortie in Lakota, the down at Fort Polk, the guys who took me flying, I think much like yourselves, all, all warrant officers, very seasoned guys who'd been flying for the army for a long time. They weren't huge fans of Lakota, especially because they've been flying the Blackhawk. And I guess oh, it, yeah. it's just a super, it just it, underpowered, couldn't carry as much, but drastic difference between the Lakota and the Chinook, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, and it's amazing at, at our facility here in Stockton, we have both. I mean, we we run both the Lakota and the Chinook. And so yeah, they're they're two totally different airframes, two, you know, the sizes are just just so much different, you know, and, and learning how to operate both of those here on the like the same flight line. It, I mean, that was a challenge enough. But luckily, like we had some roots back. We had uh Hueys and Cobras and Chinooks here for quite a while. You know, so we we kind of already had some some stuff set up. Um, we had, we had kind of our infrastructure already kind of set up to have our, our skid side and our, and our hook side of, of the flight line and all that. So it's worked out well. We, we were all very, um, I guess all the Chinook guys, when they said, Oh, you're going to have the Lakotas there at your facility. We're like, we're kind of like, eh, are you sure about that? We don't want those <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, vastly different worlds. I'm sure, you know, it's the same and anywhere you go, right? Like there's always pilots competing against pilots, but yeah. For flying the Chinook versus the Lakota and the Guard, especially a California Guard, what does a day in the life of a Chinook pilot look like versus the day in the life of a Lakota pilot? So um, there, there actually is uh, quite a bit of difference there. We uh, The Chinook guys typically, I mean, one, uh, California, I think, has one of the best training areas, uh, especially for helicopters and what we do in general. I mean, we've got the mountains that go all the way up to, you know, 10, 12,000 feet. 
in our training area. We've got in the other direction, we've got uh, coastal stuff and Southern California, we've got desert, you know, we've got every topographic type of uh, uh, area in California that we can go train at, which is great. And so uh, the Chinook guys will typically, uh, we'll go out to the east to the Sierras and, uh, and because of the quality of that training area, it's really nice that we can go out and do what we think is just normal. We're going to go out and pick up a sling load. We're going to go do some slope landings, do some terrain flight. And we just think it's normal, but it really is pretty spectacular in the, the amount of training you get. And I really saw that uh, come to uh, come to light when we had our first deployment in 2003. That was right after the, the kickoff of the war, you know, and and uh, the unit had not been deployed since like Vietnam, you know, and, and all these Vietnam dudes were jumping ship because they had already done their tours, right? And, and so, and you, we realized pretty quickly how our training area really helped us prepare and get ready for what we were going to see overseas. And then once again, in 08, when we did our Afghan deployment, we were already comfortable in the mountains, whereas some, a lot of other units weren't, you know, and, and the Chinooks kind of made for the mountains and, and we knew how to operate it in the, in those, uh, in that environment. So it made it really, uh, really easy to do that. And so that having that ability to just change, like, Oh, we're going to go to the desert. Well, uh, Let's go to the desert training area and we'll go we'll go do some dust landings out there um it really helped out and being that we all just felt it was normal that's what we do every week we go out to the mountains do some terrain flight pick up a, a cement block or two you know and uh do it do it under goggles you know and and it's beautiful training area you know you, you get halfway done stop at tahoe for dinner and then goggle up come back type of thing and it's just uh it's really awesome to be able to do all that you know and we have a We've got some class B's near us, some class Charlies that are near us, you know, and 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 you can really get this, um, uh, uh, I guess this this broadening of your skills as a pilot. You're not just stuck on a range going around the post, you know, every single day. We we can branch out and do a bunch of different things. Um, and, and the Lakota guys, they get to do the same stuff. They, I mean, they don't do sling loads as much as we do. I mean, they're not made for that, and they just have a different mission. Um, but they'll go do uh, – they'll link up with some law enforcement guys. We have a, a pretty robust counter-drug program, and uh, the Lakotas go out and do counter-drug reconnaissance, and, and, and they'll uh, – uh, the ground guys will, will set up some nets, and, and they'll, they'll do a lot of reclamation of, uh, of grow sites and, and whatnot. Um, and then they also have like the, the law enforcement type of thing. They, we've got the night sun, some FLIR on them, and they'll, uh, they'll go out and support local agencies and, and that sort of thing. And um, really unique on this, on this last uh, fire that we're on, they put, they got these uh, uh, LRAD, like large, huge speakers, and they stuck them inside the cabin of the Lakota. And they were just, those speakers are, they're really used for like crowd control. Yeah. Like, turn them up really loud and, and like make it a really annoying sound. And do some like right control stuff, but we used them to get like evacuation orders out on on the John Muir Trail, and so they were flying up and down the John Muir Trail, just saying, "Hey, evacuate now, evacuate now," um, and they were able to cover a lot of ground uh, doing that, which which is really really unique for them. Yeah, it's kind of wild to see all the different platforms and what they bring to the fight, right? And then it, yeah. it's different, right? Whether you're in combat or if you're fighting fires, whatever it might be, but. I, I'm just kind of curious as being a fixed wing guy, the very basic stuff. So Chinook like versus Lakota, like okay. I've seen these like gnarly photos of a Chinook with like the tail end down on this hut on the side of a mountain in Afghanistan, just unloading a bunch of dudes like onto the rooftop of this mud hut. Yeah. And I know, dark, is it? Yeah. So like, I know there's like density <laughs> altitude. There's a lot of like skill that goes into doing it. But when it comes to like, lifting stuff if we go like at sea level what's the difference between those two platforms and a black hawk and then what is some of the challenges of flying in high altitude environments yeah so okay um i think the basic difference between um the chinook and any of those other helicopters right we're talking our traditional uh helicopters that have a main rotor and a tail rotor right the chinook doesn't have a tail rotor it's got the two main rotors they they counter rotate which sets the torque but what's really unique about it is that now all of that, all of that lift that's being generated by those two rotor discs are going purely for lift, just to lift things up, right? Whereas in your traditional helicopters, Lakotas, Blackhawks, there's, 
it gets a little bit more complicated, but they, they have that anti-torque rotor on the tail. And, uh, and some of that horsepower gets used to keep it from spinning in place. Right. Um, and, um, and that's, that's one of the main differences. And so of course, capacities are going to be different. Uh, since we're, since the Schnucks are a cargo platform, they carry a lot of cargo, which means a lot of pounds of whatever, whether that's people, beans, bullets, whatever. Right. Yep. Um, the uh, I always make a uh, um, a comparison when we do our our Cal Fire training every year. Uh, we do a capabilities brief because we have a lot of new firefighters coming in and uh, they they don't know the capabilities either, right? And so uh, I always kind of set up the Blackhawk guys a little bit because I'll let them brief first and then you know they'll say, oh yeah, you're loving passengers, uh, you know, whatever the the pounds of cargo is. I think it might be. Um, 6,000 pounds of cargo, something, something like that, right? I, I'm not a black guy, so I don't know. Um, and, and, and they talk about their fuel burn or whatever. And I just walk up after and say, everything they said, multiply it by three. That's what we can do, right? <laughs> and to and mic drop. Also, yeah, and that's also what we cost. I mean, both in the positive and the negative. We, right. we cost three times more. We use three times as much fuel, but we can move three times as much stuff at one time, you know. And, uh, and, it, and generally, it's kind of weird. It works out. Yeah, which... How we stumbled across each other, September 5th, you were pretty busy working. Yeah. And it comes down, to, I don't know, being able to make one trip into the hot zone and get a bunch of people out or into, depending on what your mission set is, is a big deal. So when it comes to flying yeah. the Chinook, obviously you're a bigger target. There are other things to consider. But on that night of September 5th, you were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross along with the, all of your crew as well as the crew of the Blackhawk crew for rescuing. Yeah over 240 people. So really busy night going in there. And I really want to dig down into the sortie and that night in particular, can you kind of talk to like the lead up of what was happening in the days prior to that or the day of that mission? Yeah. So we, um, the, the entire state of California, the army guard and really the air guard as well, we were all responding to wildfires and, and most of us, uh, most of the guys were responding to the, um, the wildfires up north that were caused by the lightning strikes. We had this rogue, like dry lightning storm come through and it just sparked off hundreds of fires. Um, and so they were, uh, a lot of the guys were responding to that. Well, at the same time, like my unit, the, the brigade headquarters, we were on our annual training, getting ready for our mobilization that's, that's coming up. Right. And so there was a lot of us that were kind of out of the fight because we were doing that training instead of actual operational stuff so the the flight companies they they took over the brunt of the work they were they had all the crews out i mean we i think we surged to like five or six aircraft at one time uh from just our just our chinook facility and that's not including the the seven to ten blackhawks that were out on the fires and i mean just this massive response to, to all these fires going on and they were out there for a couple weeks prior to september 5th so um they finally got kind of control of those fires and uh, they started releasing assets. Cal Fire started releasing assets. And we, and I want to say just about everybody was back at home station. They had just gotten done like the Tuesday before uh, this, this mission on the fifth and everybody was finally resetting. Um, actually, I want to say, I remember I had trained up, uh, we had an out of state crews. We had an Illinois crew come in and I trained them up on the Monday and Tuesday prior to, uh, prior to the fifth and by, I want to say by Thursday, they were, everybody was done. Everybody was released. Um, and Cal fire really released everybody. So everybody's resetting back at home station, um, and getting ready for the long weekend, right? It was Labor Day weekend. And so Saturday comes around and, um, uh, we get, it was late in the afternoon. It was probably like four, four thirty in the afternoon. And we get this mass text from our flight scheduler, like, hey, looking for a crew to do a rescue. Uh, we know it's going to be Mammoth. We think it's going to be Mammoth Pools, about 30 people. So I get the text, it's kind of getting ready for the weekend, but I'm like, hey, honey, you know, all the other guys have been out busting their butts on fires. Uh, I feel like it's my turn to, to volunteer for this. And she was, and she's been doing this for just as many years as me, right? I mean, she's been an army wife for 23 years, yep. right? So, um, so she's like, yeah, whatever you feel like I, whatever you need to do. And so 
I just responded to the text. Hey, I'm in, like I'm available and I live really close to the facility. So my response time is half an hour versus some other guys that may be two and a half hours. Right. right. So it just makes sense that when I'm available. Yep. I, I can, I can do this. And most of the time our rescues are like one day missions. Right. So, uh, go out, do, do whatever we need to do, come back home. And this time I, had, when I was getting ready, um, I asked my wife, like, Hey, you know, can you get me my water bottled all set up, get some ice in there whatnot. And, and I'm going to pack, I'm going to pack an overnight bag just in case it's already late in the afternoon. We might have to remain overnight. Uh, once, once we get this done, but, uh, I'll just bring a one day bag. And, and luckily I actually packed for three days, but, uh, <laughs> cause it ended up being eight days that we were out there. Um, and, uh, were you operating in and out of your base or was it like a, a Ford operating base? No. So we had moved. So we, uh, so that afternoon around six 30 or so we launched and we were heading down to the Fresno area. We ended up RO winning. We ended up RO winning in Fresno, our army, uh, guard unit, uh, their facility down in, in Fresno. Okay. Uh, yeah. So we were out of our own home station and, um, but we went, so we, like I said, we, we launched about six 30 at night. Uh, it was about an hour flight, uh, hour and 10 minutes to get down to the, to the location. And, uh, and we got the word, Hey, just, there was a lot of talk about, okay, are we going to go to Fresno and stage or are we going to go directly to the incident? And the decision finally came that we're going to go directly to the incident. And this is right as we're getting ready to take off. Uh, so I get the text, even though I'm not supposed to be using my phone in the aircraft, right? We, <laughs> we call it, we call it MFD six, right? Yeah. We've got five MFDs in the but that's like the satcom that's the everything right that's and, gonna give you the most information yeah totally right so pull it out okay direct to the incident so off we go direct to mammoth pools um but uh we took off not knowing a lot like we knew that there was a fire there because these people were being rescued because of the fire right so and and it, it also kind of we got more information now it was 30 families not just 30 people so instead of one, one trip now we know it's going to be multiple trips right yeah that uh, changes it for sure yeah had no idea that the blackhawk was coming at this time so we're doing some mental math in our head we're like okay 120 ish people it's gonna be four trips yeah this is gonna be a long night so we were kind of prepared for that but we didn't know any of the frequencies for the fire for the the tfr or the um the fire traffic area so but luckily our our training that we did with cal fire i'm I've done about 15 fire seasons in my career. So I, I'm pretty familiar with what we need to know. And so I already knew what we didn't know. Right. So, um, which is when you're going into something and you just don't know what you don't know, that's probably the most dangerous. Right. But yep. at least we knew what, what holes we needed to fill. And so I just got on the radio with the, the North ops or the Sacramento emergency uh, communication center with, for Cal fire and started asking him hey i needed information for the creek fire and we're now we're you know 45 minutes out right and uh uh and they were great they gave us a bunch of frequencies uh and was able to get a hold of the the, the air attack or the aerial supervisor for the fire while we were in route so do they you know are used to combat right like a jtac owns like a ROS or something like that you're checking in with operating these stateside tfrs you know they'll pop up that way it's restricted but who is owning that fight if you will is it is it cal fire and is there a director that's managing all the air assets are moving in and out of and people that are moving in and out who who owns that yeah so um the the incident has a uh, the incident commander and he owns everything right he's 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 over both the ground and the air kind of assets but he's got people working for him um, and that could be u.s forest service it could be the state so for us, it's Cal Fire, right? Or it could be a local guy. And as the incident grows, it'll grow to a larger incident command team. And that team consists of all your ground operations, like your your branch chiefs and, and that sort of thing. But then there's also the air operations branch director, the AOBD, we call it. And that dude, he controls the air fight. He puts in an aerial supervisor, an ASM, uh, and, and that's a usually like a, uh, a Bronco or like OV-10 or, or some, somebody in a, in a fixed wing airplane above the entire incident. And he's controlling what we call the fire traffic area or the FTA. Um, and we call his call sign is, is usually like the incident name. Like this was the Creek fire be the Creek air attack. Um, 
Gotcha. And so he's the guy who's controlling the in and out, clearing people in. Um, and when they get a lot in, and his basic job is one to control the air fight, but now the air fight turns into both fixed wing. We're talking tankers, uh, Matt, he can see from, from above the fire, he can see like where it's running to the big macro picture. Um, and so he can make kind of priorities on where we're going to, where they're going to drop tankers. So his main role is to drop tankers. We're talking like global super tankers, C-130s, uh, the air guard C-130s with their mass uh, stuff on it. Um, and and usually like a few helicopters now when the when they start ordering more assets and they get a lot of helicopters and they have a lot of tankers that becomes a little bit too much for one guy to handle so they'll they'll call in for what's called a helicopter coordinator or helco is what we call them and so it's a dude in a little helicopter it'll type three helicopter like a jet ranger or something or a lakota our lakotas do that mission a lot and um and they they are they have the same sort of aerial supervisor uh qualified guy that's on board and he's just getting direction from the uh, air attack and will prioritize where the helicopters go. And so now the air attack only has to call one guy to say, hey, I'm going to be dropping tankers in, you know, division, whatever. So hold the helicopters. And so all the helicopters will hold like at a dip site somewhere. Tankers will come in, drop, they'll get do their exit. And then, okay, after this next tanker's in, the helicopters are cleared back in to start doing bucket work again. So so then the helper will tell us that and we'll get going again. So there's this whole traffic area, kind of like an airport traffic area. I want to call it a fire traffic area sitting around any fire. So um, and it starts with a 12 mile ring. And that's where we first need to start calling air attack, trying to get our clearance in. And if we and hopefully we get our clearance right away. If we don't, then you don't get any closer than seven miles. At seven miles, you hold. Uh, and that way it gives him time to do whatever he's doing and then get, get and then get back to you. Um, and it keeps you out of that traffic area. So you're not becoming a hazard or you're not unexpected by somebody else who's, who's going from, you know, a dip site to where he's, where he's working on the fire. He's just going back and forth, back and forth all day long. And next thing you know, there's this, this other aircraft that he wasn't expecting in there. Right? So it's just all about that control. Yeah. Different world. You know, again, I'm used to, flying overseas like if it's in a combat zone right and i'm not really worried about helicopters unless it's a show of force yeah. right like you're deconflicted but watching some of those tankers drop in like those tankers are low and you're talking about a dc-10 yeah. like it is going to be a conflict when it yeah. comes down to even like driving to the fire zone i assume you guys are using four flight or some kind of moving map that is updating with real-time TFRs. Are those TFRs pretty accurate? Is that like where you're getting your data from, like the most real-time data as far as what yeah, the fire yeah. zone looks like? Yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll be, we'll, we have four flight on our iPads and whatnot, and we have a, a, a Stratus on board so we can have the real-time data for both traffic, because there's times you're not gonna have cell coverage on the iPad, right? So yep. we use the Stratus in order to get the ADSB, you know, uh, in and, uh, and the TFR and weather information and that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so that comes in really handy. We can kind of see where people are coming in at, especially now that it, the ADSB is mandated, you know? Um, so that comes in really, really handy. Um, in this particular night, there was no TFR established yet because it yeah. takes a little time, it, you know? So this thing grew so fast that they hadn't established the TFR yet. So it just, it really just came down to this training that we do every year and just knowing, okay, I can't get any closer than seven miles. Otherwise I'll be in somebody's way. And uh, so, and, and there's nothing, there's nothing regulatory about it, right? There's, it's yeah. not like it's controlled airspace. It's a GA guy could go, Oh, Hey, look fire. I'm going to go over there and check it out. Cause my house right. is over by Shaver Lake or whatever. Right. And he yep. can go blasting through there and it'll shut down the entire firefight, the aerial firefight, because there's somebody busting the, the FTA. So that's what, like every year Cal Fire puts out, Hey, don't fly your drones. Don't fly your, you know, don't go towards wildfires. Just stay away, you know, and uh, yeah. we can continue fighting. It's kind of like, I mean, a MOA, right? Like I've had, I've stopped fights because guys have come blitzing through their VFR, which is completely legal to do. Yeah. If it's not a TFR, a temporary flight restriction, like it sounds yeah. like it's, le you know, it's legal, right? Like an FTA is not necessarily a regulatory right. thing, as you mentioned. So that's wild that, but I can completely see People want to go. It's like the rubberneckers, right? They oh, yeah. just want to go moths see the flames. Yeah, <laughs> literally, yeah. literally moths to flames. Yeah. So, so on that night, you guys reposition or you're repositioning down to Fresno, but en route 
you guys vector over to the creek fire yeah so right as we're getting ready to take off we get the word go go direct to the to the incident um so we got all the information we needed we got a hold of the air attack that was above the fire still because it was still daylight they fly until night they don't do night ops um so it was getting close to sunset when we got there called him up he cleared us in right away um and then i i tried to verify the grid coordinate right like or the lat long um and uh and so through some of the fog of war or some of the some of the, the confusion going on there i get a grid coordinate and of course it's it's not in the right format it doesn't work in the fms right and uh, so, all right man, go through luckily we have a conversion thing on the ipad so you know i'm converting you know lat longs and plugging them into the fms and pop and the little icon will pop up on my moving map and that's nowhere near mammoth pools you know so and uh and so I had about seven different, I had like seven different lat longs that I had had all labeled in there as, you know, potential LZ1, potential LZ2, you know, and they were, none of them were near each other. None of them were near where I thought we were going. So it just added a little bit more confusion. And during that, we had decided that, that we're just going to kind of circle right here by the fire um, in this area that we're kind of out of the way. We're not, we're, they're dropping tankers. We're, we're, we're not in the way the helicopters, not in the way the fixed wing guys. And we're just going to kind of have a tactical pause here and, and uh, try to figure out where exactly we need to go. Um, and we kind of had this idea in the back of our minds, well, we're supposed to be going to Mammoth Pools, but we need somebody to, to kind of clear us in there. So I'm trying to use their lingo, right, and use some of the terrain features on the map to kind of explain to this air attack, hey, this is where I want to go. This is where I am, and this is where I want to go. Am I clear to do that? Right. Can I can I do that without getting in the way of, of somebody else? And and that took a little bit of conversation. And about that same time, uh, the Blackhawk showed up and I didn't know the Blackhawk was coming until they called in. And uh, is that from your sister squadron or is that another unit? Yeah, that was another unit. Yeah, another unit. Out, well, it's still California Guard, still under the 40th cab, just the guys out of Fresno that are based. out OK. There. And uh, and I heard them call in. So we switched over to their their frequency, their internal frequency, and started talking to them. But they kind of got held out because now it, what it ended up happening is, is the air attack that was on scene, right, he got to bingo fuel, right? So he was running out of fuel. The next air attack shows up on scene. They're doing a handoff, like a battle handover for the fire. They've got this big, long briefing that they have to do. And now he's got us calling in, and he's got this Blackhawk calling in. It was a little, probably a little overwhelming, I would imagine. And yeah. uh, so he holds the Blackhawk out and no, you're not cleared in, stay, stay outside of the, of the uh, fire traffic area for now. And um, while he figures out what I need. Um, so I'm asking him a bunch of questions and I'm sure he didn't have the information. He's just trying to do the best he can, you know, and um, eventually what ends up happening is all the tankers finish dropping, all the helicopters leave because it's nighttime and everybody's at cutoff they call it cutoff like half hour after sunset and he's like hey guys uh i'm out like the show's all yours you're the only ones out here and uh good luck here's a here's a frequency to call the uh the incident commander down on the ground and uh see you guys in the morning <laughs> so, wow yeah and uh that was like the best thing that could have happened i think at, at, at the, because now it's like all right we own the airspace we're the only ones out here i don't have to worry about going in a vertin IMC into a smoke cloud, climbing up into a tanker, climbing up into into somebody. So that really took a lot of the risk and mitigated it, you know, like real quickly. Now so it's just me and the Blackhawk. And now we in we're in the same basically that we're in the same unit, right? And so we have standardized processes that that we were working. And um and and about that time is when you know I started we were right in the transition period, not quite EENT, you know, not quite dark enough for goggles, not quite bright enough for your naked eye. Um, and so I'm flipping the goggles back and forth and, and finally get to a point where I'm like, hey, guys, it's it's a whole lot better uh, with goggles on right now. So let's all transition to goggles. Um, and that's the that's the worst part. Oh, yeah. Of like either nighttime or daytime is that transition. That's like the most dangerous part yeah. flying around is because the night vision doesn't really work. Yeah. Your eyes don't really work. And then I can't even imagine operating in that environment. I've seen the videos and I'm posting them on social media again, like everything is on fire. It's just yeah. burning and smoke. So 
that's an incredibly hazardous spot to be flying around. Yeah. So we, yeah, we had found this like little clear zone that was kind of clear of the smoke outside of the active fire. We're kind of circling this apple orchard for a while. And we, and, uh, we're like, okay, well we need to come up with a plan. Cause, uh, and we, so we verified with the, the guy on the ground, the ops people on the ground with the incident command. We're like, Hey, just conf- just tell us where these people are. Like, are they at mammoth pools or are they somewhere else? And he confirmed mammoth pools for us. So we, we knew right away. All right. I already have that in the GPS. Let's go. We need to come up with a plan to go and get these people. Um, we had found a portion. So like the really active fire has a lot of smoke billowing up from, from that. It's like a wall of smoke, right? So uh, we find this spot in the fire way down in the drainage, uh, San Joaquin River drainage, where there's a there's like a break in it as it crossed the river. Water's not on fire. So there's like there's this break where the river is of this active, really active fire and where the smoke is. Um, so we're like, hey, you know, how about we try to go through right there and we'll see what's on the other side? Because at this point, we don't really know what's on the other side as far as conditions are, because all you see is the wall, right? Um, everybody agreed. Uh, the entire crew was like, yep, yeah, I'm on board with that. You know, uh, we're our, we still had some outs, right? We could turn around. We could climb up. Uh, we didn't have to worry about traffic, like I said. So we we just go for that hole in the in the smoke wall. And once we got through it and to the other side, we realized, it's dark. It's really dark and it's really smoky, you know, and almost yeah. immediately we're like, how the hell are we going to see the terrain? Um, cause now the terrain's black cause it's burned. Uh, it's dark. And, uh, and pretty quickly after that, that initial, like, Oh my God, kind of moment. Um, we started making out like, Oh, Hey, look, like all these trees are still on fire. All these bushes, all this vegetation is still on fire. And you can see some of the videos out there, some of the pictures that have been been posted around where it looks like just stars, you know, stars on the night sky and they, but they were fires illuminating this terrain. And, uh, and that's really how we were able to see the terrain. We would like, it was so dark that it was, you know, hand in front of your face, not seeing anything dark, but these little spot fires were, were kind of outlining the contours for us. Yeah, Joe, that's one thing that I guess I saw that video and for people that are listening, they can go look at this. That perspective right there to me, like is mind boggling because when I saw that video, I'm like, oh, everything is on fire. Obviously it's a bad spot, but I've been flying around at night, like over water where you can't tell if it's a boat or if it's stars. Hearing like for you to say the only way we could find out it was terrain is because it was burning, right? right? All those little fires, like Again, for those listening, like it's an incredibly hazardous spot to be flying around, like much more so than, you know, most things other than getting right, shot yeah. at. Like that's, it's, it's right below yeah. that one, I would say. Yeah. And, and, and I've said it uh, a couple of times where like, this was probably the most dangerous spot that we intentionally put ourselves into in my entire career. Of course, when we were talking about like combat stuff and we're talking about getting shot at, that's somebody else making a decision. You know, they have a choice yeah. in that, in that fight. And, and you don't really have that, that choice. It just happens. Right. And you, and you have to react to it. But this was definitely the, the worst intentional place that, that we kind of put ourselves into, but each one of the crew, we felt that the, the reward was worth that risk. And you're operating purely based upon grids, which I will say too, it is phenomenal to me that in 2020 that we have issues with grids. I ran into in my last deployment with minutes decimal minutes, which as I found out, because going to go drop bombs, the guy was going to take the grids we were given Mm -hmm. and put them in the jet, which was minutes, decimal seconds and put them in the jet, which is minutes, decimal minutes. And would have ended really poorly. And after this whole rabbit trail, come to find out that no U S fighter uses minutes, decimal seconds, like we're given the grids in uh, from the strike planners. Uh, It's only for the T lamb. So, it's it's attention to detail and minor things like that that obviously make a big difference. Yeah. But you guys, you've converted those, and now you're operating purely based off probably somewhat old data, data you've had to convert in order to fly into, you know, the devil's den to go find these people. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, was it those grids that took you right to the first people you had to go to, or what, what so was it? all those grids we were given, they were bad, like, and, and, and <laughs> over the years, you know, you, like you said, you, you learn like, 
all right, I've been burned on a bad grid before. And luckily for me, it just means landing in the wrong spot. It doesn't mean I blew up the wrong town, right? Or whatever, you know, right. the wrong target, right? Yeah. So um, I've been burned on that before. And and so every time I get a grid and they, it, I can you can tell when they say it a certain way, like if they say like 32 <laughs> dot, you know, seven, and it gives you this like eight digits after the decimal, you know, okay, that's degrees, yeah. decimal degrees, right? <laughs> and yeah. uh, and yep. so- and if you get this other weird one, like I always ask, all right, what is that degrees, minutes, seconds, or is that degrees, minutes, tenths of minutes, right? And and usually that blows their mind. They're like, what? Like they don't know what yeah. you're talking about. But um, and so pretty quickly you can figure that out. And um, so all those grids were bad. They were all right there at the edge of the fire, like basically where I was at, within like five miles. And I'm like, none of those are right. None of them are near a lake. They're you know they. I don't know where these grids came from. So what ended up happening, once I called the, the air ops guy, or I'm sorry, the, the, the operations branch chief, I was like, just tell me, are they at Mammoth Pools? Like, yep, they're at Mammoth Pools. I said, cool, I can see Mammoth Pools on a map. I put my cursor over there, dropped a, dropped a coordinate right on Mammoth Pools. I didn't have to look at the coordinates. You know, it was just, you know, pointy-talky type of stuff and uh, go direct there. And so that's that's how that worked out. And so once we got to the lake, after going through this canyon of fire, right? Um, once we got to the lake, then it became kind of like, okay, now where on the lake are these people? It's not like we had a 10 digit grid or, or, or a really good lat long. It was, we were going to the center point of the lake. But once we got there, they heard us and they started flashing all their lights on their vehicles that were down there, which helped out. You know, it, it, yeah. we would have been going the, the wrong way because my initial, I was in the right seat. So my initial reaction, once we hit the, the spillway was to turn right and just start following and looking at the at the beach line, but they were over at my ten o'clock, and and my co-pilot he he was one hey I see flashlights over there, perfect let's turn let's turn that way and it ended up being them. You know it's such a basic principle and I would say probably in the helicopter world you maintain it, flying fixed wing I think it gets lost really quick with all the technology but it comes to like looking out yeah. the window and something is basically like where are they? They're at the mammoth Lake. Like you either can look out the window and see it. You can see it on a sectional and go there. Like it's something pure and simple, but not just purely relying on the technology. And then again, hats off to those people. I mean, it probably comes down to survival, yeah. right? Like yeah. you're surrounded by fire. You're going to do whatever yeah, if, you can you know, to get, get people to look at you. If I've been sitting there, just got burned over. We have, you know, there's people in this group that are burned or have broken bones or whatever. And you know, and we're sitting there for hours and it's quiet, right? There's nothing going on besides this fire crackling in the background. And then I start hearing like helicopters, like, or any, any real like aircraft, you know, aircraft noise coming over. I, I think a reaction would be, Hey, we need to signal these guys. The visibility is, it's dark for them. So it's even worse for them. Right. And, and uh, yeah, we need to, I would think a signal like, there's got to be one person there who was like a Boy Scout or did something in their life where they know, okay, we <laughs> yeah. need to get a signal out, right? And that's exactly what they did. <laughs> right. So going going in there, yeah, obviously you find them. And now the next step, I would imagine, is finding a good LZ. Yeah. There's probably a lot of threats. And I know you do it day in and day out. Again, it's probably like putting on your pants to go to work. But for most of us, I mean, you're going in there at night. I know you do have MVGs, but there's smoke. Like, you don't know if there's power lines and all these other yeah. threats. So was that the next step, finding a good LZ? And what did you have to um, do? It was kind of difficult, but it happened really quick. Um, and you bring up the power lines. That was, we did see some power lines that crossed the valley we were flying down on the sectional. And so, you know, the ones that, that show up on the sectional are the big ones, right? And so um, that for a moment was actually a really, uh, a really scary moment because we realized that on the black background, we wouldn't be able to see the, the, the lines or the pole. There's zero contrast, right? So they were basically invisible. Um, but we did see the powerhouse down the river that they went to. So so that, be, that became the pole, right? We always, in helicopter world, you know, wires are a thing, right? And so we, we, yeah. we always cross at a pole because you know that if you cross over the pole of a wire, there's not going to be anything above it. Yeah. If you try to cross between the poles, you know, you could see the sag of the main power lines, but you may not see the tension line that runs straight across, right? So 
yeah. there's nothing taller than there's not going to not going to be anything sticking out above the poles. So we cross at the poles. Well, that power plant ended up. We knew that these lines are running down to the valley floor to this power plant, and we so we knew that's basically our pole. Uh, so we flew as high as we could with you know the smoke above us over that power plant, and then once we didn't hit them on the other side, and we're like, okay, we're clear, you know. <laughs> so problems I've never had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, we got through that, and uh, and once we got to the LZ. Well, then, you know, we get to the dam and I'm thinking, well, you know, a lot of dams are used as as power as well. But uh, yeah. the some of the cues for that kind of weren't there. We we didn't see lights. We didn't see uh, buildings. We didn't see um, uh, even on the sectional. There was no like power lines going to the dam area where this hydroelectric plant might be. So. Um, so we kind of determined that there's probably if there are wires, they're, they're the smaller like telephone pole road wires, and we're we're not that low right now, you know, and and so that that risk kind of was mitigated, I thought. But then comes into like finding a good spot to land, right? I mean, I'm not familiar with that area, but I imagine there's not a whole lot of like flat open yeah, spots. Yeah, I mean, these are these are basically bowls in the mountains that just collect water, right? So nothing's flat. Um, tree anywhere that would be flat is full of trees. Um, it was a campsite and and, and whatnot, but um, and the water level, I can almost immediately tell that the water, we're in a drought, the water level's down. And so you can see like the tree line and where the water line was, was a good 40 feet. And it was extremely steep there. And so we we basically um, kind of come to a hover, really slowly, maybe like 20 knots, kind of hover around and kind of see the group of people, see where their vehicles are. Um, and we're just trying to pick out spots and we're all, like all four of us in the aircraft are like, hey, what about there? What about there? Eh, no, I don't really like that. Well, what if we turn sideways and it's more of a cross thing or 45 degrees on it? It's kind of a complex slope, so that's not too much in, in either direction. And I'm like, well, no, I that, that I'm looking at this waterline thing, and they're like, that's probably more of a cliff than a slope. You know, you don't really want to land there. And uh, so we kind of just circle the people, uh, keeping them out the front of the aircraft and. We're over the water and just kind of circle around them, and that's when we see the boat ramp. Almost immediately, we're all kind of like, that's the spot. We know that's cement, uh, and so we know it's going to be at least the same slope the whole time. Um, we're not going to have to worry about some sort of cliff where the water's been for you know decades and just eroding away the, the, the ground. Um, and there was, on that boat ramp, there was a little bit of a wider spot about a third of the way down. Um, so we're like, okay, that's where we're going to put the back of the aircraft, right there. Because that gives us the, the most rotor clearance uh, from the trees and anything else. And it just so happened that that boat ramp was, or the launch ramp was, you know, kind of in the right spot. It was it was far enough away from the people that we weren't going to, uh, like, blow them around with our rotor wash. We weren't going to cause any uh, extra hazard to them. Um, but at the same time, wasn't so far away that, anybody who's injured was going to take an excessive amount of time to get to the aircraft. So we uh, brief it real quick and we, we set up for, for the landing. The guys in the back are doing their job exactly like they're supposed to. They're, they're saying, hey, this is going to be an upslope landing, you know, your upslope gear, your forward gear. And uh, uh, just, just like we've trained in our mountain training area, right? And uh, so all that training kind of came back as muscle memory. And as we're assessing it on, on doing the low recon on the short final, we're like, hey, this is probably going to become a brownout landing just because of the amount of dust uh, in the sand that's on the beach, right? And uh, the the F-Model Chinook is awesome because at the flick of a button, I have one button on the on the thrust or the collective, we call it a thrust, and one button on there, I move it down, left, and up, and I can let go, and the aircraft will come to a hover and just hold it. It's all uh, through the INUs, uh, you know, inertial uh, altitude hold and inertial, they figure it all out and they keep you in one spot, you know, and and so what ends up happening is we, we just do this normal approach. We have all these modes armed uh, and ready to go. Uh, the altitude hold is armed, but it's disengaged when we have the trigger on the collective pulled because uh, that's how we tell it, no, I want to move. I want to move something. And, uh, and so it's just kind of standing by in the background. And then sure enough, as soon as that dust hits the forward cabin, the guys are calling it there, hey, dust is forming, dust is mid-cabin, dust is coming up the forward cabin. Uh, that's when we transition inside and our, our MFD has a, uh, at 30 knots, it switches from a normal 
HSD or compass card, you know, or HSI basically, okay. it changes from that to a hover display where uh, we have a vector, like a velocity vector that's shooting out and just a, a compass tape. And so we can see our velocity vector, we can see our bank angles and all this other stuff. Um, and it really helps with hovering. So we transition inside, I let go of basically everything. The aircraft starts coming to, uh, it starts to slow down on its own, comes to a hover. The symbology kind of changes when it's all, we call it all locked up when all three axes uh, are, are locked up. And symbology changes, like, hey, we're all locked up. And, and that's when the guys in the back start going to work. I can't see anything out front. The guys in the back are like, okay, I need you to come forward 10 and left three. And so just start, you know, pushing forward a little bit, get that velocity vector to move a little bit. And they call it down to zero. And when it's at zero, it's when we're over the spot. And they're like, all right, you clear down. Jeez. With this, like, again, like you guys are approaching over the water into the boat yeah. ramp, right? Boat ramp, concrete, or boat launch, yeah. I should say. And the plan, obviously, you're touching down on all your wheels. It's not like hovering back gate, uh, back ramps open, right? right? No, yeah, it's not like a two-wheel landing. Okay, yeah. yeah, so touching down, but still, like, not seeing anything going in there. What kind of like even space do you need for a Chinook? Like in my mind, I'm worried about like the random like pier pole or whatever that, you know, is sticking out there. Like how much space do you need to put that Chinook so down? So the, the rotor is, I mean, we're basically a hundred feet long and 60 feet wide. Right. And that's from rotor tip to rotor tip. So a little bit more than that. Um, and What's funny is that a lot of times we'll look at LZs. I'm like, nah, that's too we're like, nah, that's too small. But once you get in there, it's huge. Like you don't like that that apparent foreshortening that 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 illusion makes you think it's too small, and you get in there, and it's perfectly fine. And uh, yeah, something about having these like blades of right. death over your head, at least in my <laughs> mind, that I'm like, nah, I need a football yeah. field at least. Yeah. So yeah, so we get over that, and um, and we have planned to do a four wheel landing. Uh, and we, and like any boat launch, I mean, it's a slope, it's a pretty significant one. Every year you've got vehicles that, you know, you get trucks over there that they get their tires wet and they can't get out of it. Right. And, uh, so the biggest concern there is on the, so on the aft rotor, those rotors are 30 feet in the air, right? So from ground, you could have obstacles 15 and they're not going to hit the rotors because they just don't go that high. Right. Um, but the forward rotors, those are a lot lower to the ground. In fact, at the 12 o'clock of the aircraft, just sitting on a level surface, those rotors can come down to four feet, four inches. So, yeah. So Ooh. whenever, because the transmissions are tilted, that way we could ground taxi. Okay. And um, and so, like, don't ever approach a Chinook from the 12 o'clock, you know, and which is really weird because a lot of other aircraft, they want you to approach from the 12 o'clock. But, uh, yeah, so... Anytime somebody approaches them at 12 o'clock on us, we're on the ground. Our funger usually tries to go and tackle them before they get there, you know, because that'll, that'll be a bad day for everybody for sure. Yeah. Du- duly noted four feet, four, four, feet, four inches. inches. So if you're taller than four feet, four inches, it's going to be a bad day. <laughs> well, this concludes part one of episode 16 with chief warrant officer, Joe Rosamond. You can hear the remainder of the story and the rescue in part two, which is available right now. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.